we've seen for so long seeming one-way traffic of capital flows, of asset values, and frankly, the whole market uh, performing in the same direction. And I think what's exciting about today is we're going to see a lot of volatility. We're already seeing it. And so we'll see asset value corrections. That's exciting. We'll see bifurcation where there will be haves and have nots. Anytime the market goes back to differentiating, that's exciting. That's Lauren Hochfelder, the co-CEO and head of Americas for Morgan Stanley Real Estate Investing, which is the private real estate arm of the firm. Lauren began at Morgan Stanley in 2000 as an analyst and she was appointed to this new leadership role in February. And she's now responsible for a $55 billion portfolio across 17 countries. She experienced the worst of the global financial crisis in the first decade of her career. So we're talking about her sense of the current economic climate in a moment, as well as the shifts in Morgan Stanley's real estate portfolio since the aftermath of the GFC. She's also discussing how the real estate industry may have to change the way it makes money. I think the industry overall has seen the greatest share of value appreciation through cap rate compression. And we certainly cannot rely upon that going forward and, in fact, the complete opposite. I asked her first, though, what's been taking up her focus in the first seven months of her job, considering everything that's been going on, the war in Ukraine, rising interest rates and stubborn inflation? Yes, the macro environment is certainly um, chock full of uh, many risks and um, a lot of volatility. Look, stepping back um, from our business standpoint, we invest capital across the spectrum from core to value add slash opportunistic. And so our focus through this period has been very much on both um, managing and optimizing our existing portfolios of assets on a global basis, as well as really offensively targeting the market. So, it's so looking for deals, time. is that what you mean? Yes, absolutely. Across the board though, transactions have kind of slowed down significantly and you have actually predicted um, the devaluing of some assets, mm -hmm. certain types of assets yes. and some significantly. So I think the general rule, it's fair to say, mm -hmm. is that office is not in a good place, B and C class assets mm -hmm. particularly. How much exposure does Morgan Stanley have to those types of assets? We've been actually for quite some time um, uh, overweight industrial and residential. So um, look, we certainly did not foresee uh, the impacts of work from home and this more existential crisis that office is facing today. But it is a sector that um, had some headwinds even before COVID, and those have certainly been accelerated. So you look at, obviously, the work from home impact is fairly uh, different across the different regions. So when you look at office utilization for a market like New York, where we are, or San Francisco, it is just a different world when you compare that to Tokyo or even London. So uh, behaviors are quite different for a whole host of reasons. So why was it that you were already stepping away from office? What were the kind of headwinds that were affecting that market? Because I on, in, in my memory, I remember Office being like this sort of glorious thing, <laughs> but that sounds like it wasn't the case. Dialing the clock back, Office um, has historically or was historically the largest food group in institutional real estate ownership. And when I started in the business in 2000, it was 
a significant um, overweight for virtually every institutional investor. And that's for you know, all of the reasons that are probably obvious. I think as you uh, shift over time, our focus has very much been on those sectors that have secular tailwinds. So we go through different economic cycles, but ultimately what we want to be overweight are spaces where we think demand is more resilient and where we think there are tailwinds that will drive even beyond um, economic factors. So for example, residential. The US and frankly on a global basis, we've observed a material material undersupply of, of residential housing and certainly of affordable residential housing. Industrial, um, obviously e-commerce has been a supercharger and today you see further secular tailwinds like supply chain reorientation and resilience focus, et cetera. Healthcare, uh, aging baby boomers, increased spending, et cetera. So I think our shift, um, to those sectors being overweight had more to do with our belief in the strength of those sectors. But to your question on office, I think an additional headwind the space faced even before COVID was how CapEx intensive it is. So investors tend to quote cap rates and compare cap rates across different sectors. We really look at it on a CapEx adjusted cap, uh, cap rate basis. So when you adjust for CapEx and look at your true cap rate after CapEx, office didn't look quite as attractive to us as other spaces. So you were kind of reading the, the tea leaves already well before the pandemic in terms of like demographics, where the population was going, the think sorts of things that investors were interested in. That's right. We certainly did not uh, have a crystal ball into these shifts in um, work from home and other dynamics, uh, but um, we did prefer the other sectors before COVID and continue to today. I know that your view is that in the current environment, you know, the real estate industry is going to have to manufacture returns and re rely less on tailwinds. Um, what does that mean in practice for someone like you? You're running a big, what, $55 billion portfolio, 17 countries. I mean, how does that look mm -hmm. when you're manufacturing <laughs> returns and not just yes. relying on how things swing? It means it's going to be a little harder. Mm. Um, no, I think the industry overall has seen the greatest share of value appreciation through cap rate compression. And we certainly cannot rely upon that going forward and, in fact, the complete opposite, obviously. Um, we've also had, um, frankly, globally, very strong economic conditions uh, and real growth. Um, today, that, uh, that growth is um, slowing. And so Europe already in recession, US certainly facing material headwinds, tightening financial conditions, et cetera. Over the past decade plus, the private real estate markets have appreciated substantially because of cap rate uh, compression. And uh, we obviously are seeing a reversal of that trend today. Um, so the only way to really create value in assets is to have assets where your income potential can outpace that cap rate expansion. And in turn, the economic environment is softening. So the degree to which you can rely on economic strength, underlying economic strength to grow income is less. And so what that means is you need to find markets, sectors, and frankly, specific assets that you think will outpace economic growth. So sometimes that's just top down picking the right um, sectors and markets, 
But frankly, what we expect is that even within those markets, you need to choose assets where you can really drive income growth. So is it an asset that you think can be repositioned to be more appealing to today's tenants in whatever space? Um, is that, um, and some of that is retrofitting to be uh, for sustainability, um, characteristics, some of it is um, thinking about what modern day tenants want, greater amenitization, etc. So really figuring out ways where you're not just betting on the beta of market rent growth, because we think that will come down, but on um, really when we talk about manufacturing, it's creating better assets so you have better rent growth. My guest on the podcast last week was a, um, a Texas investor and a developer who'd been in the business for decades. And he basically said that the merchant model of real estate is is about to break, um, which was very interesting because he was saying it's sort of just the, the the practice had been getting in, building quickly, getting out, making a, making mm-hmm. a killing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, if that does take place... How does that affect the financing environment, do you think? Yeah. Well, I'd almost start with the question the other way around, which is I think part of why the merchant development model is um, tougher today is the sheer or the vast dislocation in the financing markets. So you've seen just a sharp pullback in bank financing and frankly in non-bank financing that is derivatively uh, reliant on banks. And so for that merchant builder who uh, could tie up a piece of land and um, go get a uh, really attractive construction loan and build to that profit, that construction loan is way less likely to be there today. In fact, I'd say it's with few exceptions, really not there, and certainly not there at the same terms. So I think that has curtailed or will um, will increasingly curtail supply. So I think that is that is one. And I think secondly, you're seeing not just a reduction in debt targeting development, but also equity. Um, so for the last 10 years, we've been talking about this wall of capital, this wall of equity capital there to buoy um, asset values. And there is certainly a lot of capital targeting private real estate today, but there are areas where it's reducing. Look at um, public REITs. Given where they're trading, it's really hard for them to be as active in the market. Um, look at um, frankly, private investors that are allocated across the investable universe, given just the revaluation of the public equity markets, debt markets, et cetera, you're experiencing a fairly extreme denominator effect, meaning all of these institutions wake up and they're over allocated to real estate and in turn need to pull back their real estate allocation. So I think reduction in debt, reduction in equity, and that's before you get to perhaps slowing fundamentals and wider cap rates. So you said you were aggressively looking for deals. Mm-hmm. Whereabouts, what sorts of deals are you after? Yeah. In the face of higher inflation, higher rates, slowing growth, more macro uncertainty, we think it's even more important to focus on sectors, markets, and specific opportunities where you believe you can really grow NOI in excess of cap rate expansion that we've been discussing. We think that is that continues to be industrial to a lesser extent, but still uh, strong residential 
and some of the um, alternative sectors, whether healthcare or otherwise. Um, I think one of the most exciting opportunities for us today is beyond sort of sector selection is different entry points. So asset values are correcting before our eyes. We want to still buy the highest quality real estate, but we think we'll get better entry points and frankly, different entry points. When you see the evaporation of debt financing from the traditional lending universe, we think that creates an opportunity for us to come in and provide creative capital solutions. So um, debt-like structures, whether that's debt or preferred or what have you, um, really helping existing real estate owners get to the other side of this volatility, of this downturn. And um, we think this is where we get to employ the greatest extent of our creativity to find those solutions. The portfolio that you have has changed significantly. I read it was 70% opportunistic and 30% core in 2010. And now it's more like 90% lower risk. Do you see that changing at all? I think the broader institutional real estate market has shifted over time. So again, when I started in this business um, here at Morgan Stanley in 2000, the preponderance of institutional capital at that time was opportunistic. Um, over the last 20 years, there's been a real shift in the role that private real estate plays in institutions' overall portfolios, and that shift has been very much um, not, um, not to the exclusion of opportunistic, which still plays a real role, but to um, core real estate. And so whether that's as a fixed income alternative or, or otherwise. Our business was one of the first to identify that shifting tide. You just mentioned that you started in 2000 mm -hmm. um, as an analyst, I understand. Um, so you certainly experienced the worst of the global financial <laughs> crisis. But in the time since you've been in sort of senior roles, mm -hmm you've experienced a market on the rise. What do you remember of like being in the office when the bottom was falling out of the market and all these crazy things were happening? Beyond never leaving the office? Yes. <laughs> uh, look, I think um, some of the things I remember most are the amplifying effect of leverage and just the degree to which when you are over levered small changes in underlying performance are just magnified um, exponentially. And um, that was certainly um, a critical lesson. I think in turn, um, the importance of the non-financial terms of leverage or structure. So we looked at um, investors across uh, the globe having covenant issues, frankly, having just different liquidity events that had nothing to do with the underlying real estate but were structural in nature. So that was one. Um, I think secondly, just the degree to which um, different markets and different sectors could perform differently. I think today is a moment in time where you're seeing such mass bifurcation. Um, uh, during the GFC, you certainly um, saw mass correction across the board, but also some degree of bifurcation. Um, and I think what was perhaps most exciting was uh, having the opportunity to come together as a team and really f laser focus on maximizing value across our portfolio. 
and um, really working things out uh, with playbooks that really hadn't existed thus far. And so it was um, a really difficult time, but an incredible learning uh, experience for me and frankly, I think for the industry, certainly for our business. When I look at how we invest today, it's quite different. That was what I was about to ask you. I mean, how did that experience, you know, they say we're some of our experiences. Mm -hmm. How did that experience <laughs> affect your kind of your approach to business, your decision making? One, um, it put risk management first and foremost on my mind in everything we do. So would you say you're risk averse? No, um, I think that what we do is determine the most appropriate risks to take at a given moment in time and uh, ensure that we're sufficiently compensated for taking on those risks. So we really target the optimal risk-adjusted returns um, globally at any moment in time. But the way we think about leverage is very different, both leverage level and leverage structure. So um, in the GFC, it's the market overall was so materially over-levered. Um, today, when I look at our portfolios, um, we're underweight leverage relative to even our peers. So it's something um, we focus on managing um, uh, very carefully. Um, two, I think back in the GFC, our business, like many, had been very focused on take privates of public companies, so uh, or just general wholesale to retail plays. So buying a very large portfolio of assets, breaking them up, and uh, generating a you know an arbitrage or a spread in the pricing. Um, what we do today, everything we do has a value add component, whether um, whether that's a more material uh, business plan execution or even just selecting assets where we believe we can drive income growth in some way. Okay, so it's changed how you think about risk, um, how you think about leverage. Mm -hmm. Those are the big two, two big takeaways. And I would say how we think about centralized decision-making generally. Mm. Um, so our business is uh, very global. So we have 17 offices in 13 countries. And I think one of the key advantages we have is to have that global perspective. So we're obviously students of big macro research and benefit from Morgan Stanley's just incredible supply thereof. But knowing what's happening on the ground in all of these markets, I can't even underscore how valuable that is. So whether that's on secular trends, right? Seeing, for example, life science uh, really boom in the U.S. and thinking ahead of the curve how that might uh, flow through to Europe or to Asia, um, or just the economic um, impacts of different things. So I think having the ability to look around the world and um, comb through and find the best opportunities, but to have the on the ground boots in all of these markets and yet have the ability to um, step back and look at them and compare and contrast is a huge competitive advantage. Are you getting any um, GFC vibes right now? Look, I think we're in um, 
a much better position going into this than we were in the GFC. There's less leverage in the system. Um, the U.S. consumer is in a strong position or came into this in a strong position. Vacancy levels are at record lows. Just the fundamentals are very strong today. Now, do we expect a weakening of that as uh, you have the lag effect of inflation and rate rises? Of course. But um, I, I think we're I expect a softening, but not at that magnitude. You know, something I've been hearing a lot is that it's quite hard to get deals done. Mm -hmm. So that's because obviously the debt markets are frozen, but on the ground, it's kind of a different story. So for example, in the industrial market, I've been hearing that tenants can't find space and vacancy is incredibly low, mm -hmm. but developers are saying they can't get a loan to build, to meet demand. So can you kind of do you have any insight into why that's happening? What is this dislocation? What's driving this dislocation? So firstly, I would comment that it's bifurcated. Mm -hmm. So if you look at so-called big bombers, so these million square foot warehouses, I would say we're starting to see real weakness in those. It's obviously so different by market. Um, but um, it's where you've seen the greatest supply risk. So even supply underway, even if the next guy can't get a construction loan. Um, and they're more reliant on e-commerce uh, than uh, just overall supply chain reconfiguration. And so I think the big bomber is seeing um, a tougher time. But yes, as you referenced, in many markets, so our Inland Empire industrial, um, our um, northern New Jersey industrial, it is extraordinarily tight. And, uh, you know, frankly, these are markets where you see inelastic demand, where tenants need to be there and at the same time where there are very material supply constraints. And so the markets where you're seeing the tightest supply demand uh, conditions, yes, it's because of a dearth of construction financing, but it's also natural supply constraints. When do you think that we might see lending markets loosen up or do you think we are going to? I mean, what, and what would that kind of even look like? Is it is it temporary uncertainty? Because that's what people keep talking about. Oh, we need more clarity and we mm -hmm. need more visibility in the market. Or is this like a fundamental shift? I, I don't think, it, when you say fundamental shift, the financing markets will come back. Mm. Um, the U.S. capital markets, um, more so than Europe, for example, are very dynamic. So while we have uh, a substantial base of bank-driven lending, mm -hmm. we also have a lot of different capital markets type lenders, so whether that's debt funds or what have you. Right now, I think it's tough because even those debt funds are reliant upon the banks to get their fund lines of credit or you know warehouse lines, what have you. But the U.S. capital markets are fairly quick to adjust, and so none of us has a crystal ball as to when and how, but, um, you know, think about groups like us who are traditional equity investors, we are happy to step in and fill that gap today. So I think the U.S. capital markets will adjust. It sounds like, um, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting work almost in a way. We've seen for so long seeming one-way traffic of capital flows, of asset values, um, and frankly almost a homogenization or a, the whole market uh, performing in the same direction. Mm. And I think what's exciting about today is we're going to 
see a lot of volatility. We're already seeing it. And so we'll see asset value corrections. That's exciting. We'll see bifurcation where there will be haves and have nots. You know, take an example. The last you know, decade plus, we talked about A versus B malls. I think the next decade, we might be talking about A versus B office um, or just really wide bifurcation by market. And so anytime um, the market goes back to differentiating, that's exciting. If you didn't have this fabulous job right now in real estate, what sort of job would you want to be doing? Where do you think the exciting opportunities would be? I think there are a lot of interesting ways to support U.S. cities. So we spend a lot of time thinking about why certain markets are performing better than others. Mm -hmm. And so I love what I do, uh, but I think there are so many exciting ways to support the um, hopeful economic recovery of various U.S. cities. Because there's a lot of young people in this industry looking at like, where's, oh, this doesn't feel great. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> where's my next move going to be? What advice would you have for them? It is, um, it is the best time to start a career. I think that coming into an industry that is dislocated and seeing all of these just changes afoot, what could be more exciting than starting a career in that environment? And just the highest uh, learning curve or the steepest learning curve, um, the greatest opportunity to just get more and more reps under your belt and different types. I think just from a learning and intellectual standpoint, there's no more exciting time. That's Lauren Hochfelder. She's the co-CEO of Morgan Stanley Real Estate Investing. I've left some links to stories that you might find interesting in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.